Father, as we come to back to chapter 24 today and we look at this text in a different light, I just ask today that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you just reveal to us this beautiful picture that we have here uh, in this story of the wedding of Isaac and Rebekah and how it is a picture of uh, the wedding of uh, you with the church, Lord, your bride. And uh, Lord, just how if we can learn to see our relationship with you in that light, how it just changes everything. Uh, Lord, there's so many people in this world that call themselves Christians that, that really aren't living in that kind of relationship with you. Lord, it's a wonderful relationship. Uh, our relationship with you is, is a love story, and, and that's what we want to see today as we, we look at this text. And so, Lord, I just ask that you reveal this all to us by the power of your Holy Spirit and, and uh, open our eyes to see this beautiful picture that you've painted for us here in this text. I just ask you, you do that, and I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Well, last week we finished up chapter 24 of Genesis, and, and uh, you remember the story. Abraham had sent his servant Eleazar, uh, to find a bride for Isaac, and he had returned. And, and uh, when we finished up, and we, we'll just flip there for a minute. You go to chapter 24, uh, look at those last two verses there. And, and so they all arrive, uh, this party carrying the bride arrives, and Isaac is waiting on him. And in verse 66 it says, And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, the miraculous things that God had done in order to consummate this... this uh, wedding event. And then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, what a great love story that is. I mean, if, if it wasn't anything else, if it was just written in the Bible as a, as a love story to read, I mean, it'd be, a, it'd be a great story, and you can see a loving God showing us this story. But this story means a lot more than that, doesn't it? We know it means a lot more than that because uh, Isaac and Rebekah are going to have a son named Jacob. And Jacob is going to marry a girl named uh, Rachel and Leah. He actually is going to have two wives. And through those two wives, he's going to have 12 sons. And those 12 sons are going to become the nation of Israel. And uh, they're going to become the 12 tribes of Israel who are going to make up the nation of Israel. And from those 12 tribes of Israel are going to come the Messiah who's going to die for the sins of the world. And so this story is, a, is one of the most important stories that we have in the entire Bible. But the story goes even deeper than that, and that's what I want to be looking at today. Because the Lord in his infinite wisdom arranged all of these events and all of these characters in such a way as not only to, to, to set up the nation that would bring forth the Messiah, but also to give us a picture of his relationship with his bride, the church. And that's why I want to revisit chapter 24 today and, and uh, just look at this as a type of Christ and his bride. And I think it's a, just a beautiful picture for us right here. But uh, before we do that, I want to discuss you know, the justification that we have for doing that. Because, you know, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not much on allegorical interpretation. 
I believe that you should interpret the Bible literally unless it states otherwise. And, and what allegorical interpretation is is where the, the, the uh, expositor looks at the text and finds some hidden meaning, meaning there that he believes that the text was written for us to glean, that that's the main reason that the text was written. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not much on that because, again, I believe that you interpret the Bible literally unless it says otherwise. But there are times in the Bible when we are given allegories. Uh, we looked at an allegory earlier when, when we looked at the story of uh, Sarah and Hagar because Paul uses that over in Galatians and he says that this is an allegory. This story is an allegory and Hagar represents uh, the law and Sarah represents grace. And so there are some times in the Bible when you're going to see an allegory. But listen to me very carefully. You need to beware of people who engage in allegorical interpretation. Because the danger of, an alle of interpreting the Bible, Bible allegorically is this. When you're, looking for, for a, when you're looking for a meaning that is not the meaning that stands out in the Bible, what, you, what happens when you do that, you're in the danger of, of moving the authority of interpretation from God to man. And that's what's been done over the centuries through allegorical interpretation interpretation. And, and so the real meaning, the, the, the intended literal meaning, is supplanted for some allegorical meaning. The, and I, I, you'll hear this term church fathers, the church fathers. Really the church fathers are the fathers of the Catholic church. And, and men like Origen, uh, Clement of Rome, Augustine. I mean, Augustine was a very prolific writer and he wrote some great stuff, but he was famous for his allegorical interpretation. So was Origen. Uh, they, they were philosophers as much as they were theologians, and, and the philosophers were the ones who engaged in a lot of allegorical interpretation, like Plato's cave, for example. I'm not going to get into that today, but, but uh, they got a lot of their, they studied the philosophers and they studied theology, and so they mixed all of this together, and they came up with, with this practice of using allegorical interpretation to interpret scriptures. Uh, I'll give you just one example. Pope Gregory the Great, who is considered one of the church fathers, he wrote a commentary on the book of Job. And in that commentary, he's, commentary, he says that Job's friends, those three friends, this will be, you can use this in your study this week, Lois, those three friends represent the heretics of all time. Now, to some degree, I might even see that because those three friends of Job who are giving him all this bad advice were heretics to some degree. They say some really, some really deep theological true things, but they also say some heretical things. That's why it's so difficult to study the book of Job because you've got you to gotta dig out what's true from what's heretical. Uh, but uh, So he said that the three friends were, were, represent the heretics of all time. The seven sons represented the 12 disciples. Uh, I don't understand that. If God had written Job as an allegory or had the writer write it as an allegory, I would have think he would have had 12 sons represent the 12 disciples. I don't know why it would be seven sons representing the 12 uh, apostles. Uh, the 7,000 sheep, he says, represent the, the church, and the 3,000 camels represent the Gentiles. And he interprets that whole book based upon that those allegorical uh, symbols there used that he used in that text. Now we're going to get into his interpretation, but obviously 
that's a bad interpretation of the text. Uh, but allegorical, sadly enough, allegorical interpretation didn't end with the church fathers. Even today, there are people who teach allegorically. When you hear somebody tell you that the story of Genesis is just a symbolic story, what are they doing? They're interpreting the story of Genesis instead of interpret Genesis instead of interpreting interpreting it literally. They're interpreting it allegorically. Uh, they're saying that the intended meaning of that is not the literal obvious meaning. There's some hidden meaning, and we need to figure out what that hidden meaning is. Uh, so uh, you, you see allegorical interpretation in a lot of areas. There are people who even interpret the Gospels allegorically. Uh, they see the Gospels as not literal events, but as symbolic events. Several of our founding fathers, who some people say were Christians, interpreted the Gospel allegorically. And you can see the dangers of doing these kind of things are obvious, because when you take the essential truths of the Bible and you interpret them in your own way, you become the one who... Uh, becomes the authority of this scripture and its interpretation, then the danger of that is you interpret them in error, and if you interpret the scripture in error, you're in, you're, you might be buying yourself a one-way ticket to hell. And so allegorical interpretation is, is very dangerous. And, and I've seen several uh, commentaries on different books of the Bible by conservative evangelical scholars that have been interpreted, been interpreted allegorically especially like the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who most of you admire, you, probably many of you have read some of his works, he interpreted the uh, book of uh, the Song of Solomon allegorically. J. Vernon McGee interprets the book of the Song of Solomon, Solomon allegorically. In other words, that the intended meaning of that book was not... Uh, a love story between Solomon and the Shulamite woman, it has all sorts of symbolic meaning about Jesus Christ and the church. And every single verse, you have to look at it and try to figure out what that symbolic meaning is when you interpret it allegorically. Now, who am I to argue with Charles Haddon Spurgeon or J. Vernon McGee? I believe they were men of God who were filled with the Spirit of God and maybe... Uh, God gave them an allegorical interpretation of this book. But I don't see it as an, allegor as an allegory. I believe it's a literal story with literal meaning, and I believe that's the way God intended it to be interpreted. And I think what the book, the main, re the th main thing that the book does show us is that uh, how great God intended the love between a man and a woman to be. And I think that's one of the main things uh, uh, purposes for the book of, of Song of Solomon. But I certainly do see it as a type, as a type of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. There's certainly some typology there, but you don't look at every verse and look for some kind of hidden symbolic meaning when you look at the, the uh, book of the, the uh, Song of Solomon. Because there's a big difference, a big difference, between an allegory and a type. Now, an allegory, and I'm going to give you a definition here, 
uh, a true biblical allegory, one that's true, uh, is defined as an extended metaphor intended in the original text. It's a metaphor that's intended in the, the original text. And you do have allegories in the Bible. The potter and the wheel and Jeremiah, that, that is an allegory. With all, it paints all sorts of spiritual pictures. Uh, Jesus, when he talked about uh, the vine and its branches, that is an allegory that paints all sorts of spiritual pictures. And you want to look at everything in that allegory and you want to figure out its symbolic meaning because it was intended to be an allegory. The sower and the field, all of those things are allegorical and Jesus interprets that allegory. It wasn't a literal story, it was, a, it was, a, was an allegory. So there are times when you do have an allegory. But biblical, biblical uh, uh, typology, uh, on the other hand, let me give you the de definition for it, it's a foreshadowing of later events uh, Therefore, it's, has, it's a secondary meaning. It's a meaning we see, a picture we see painted uh, uh, that we can only see after the fact. Creation, for example. You would never interpret the a creation account allegorically, but it is a type. It's a type of God's sovereignty over all of the history of mankind. And I believe and maybe I'm interpreted it allegorically when I say this, but I believe that it's a type of all of history and that, that uh, there was se the, the literal seven days is a type of all history because I believe that we will labor for 6,000 years and, in the, uh, and at the end of the 6,000 years, we will go into a 1,000-year millennium. And I believe there's a type there. Now, that hasn't, that foreshadows that type and we're not sure that's the way it's going to be because we haven't arrived to the millennium yet. But when we get to the millennium, we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to see that the creation is a type. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because we're going to be looking at a type today, uh, much like the type we see in the book of Exodus. The whole book of Exodus is a type of our salvation, isn't it? I mean, even the, I mean, when the, when, uh, uh, the waters are, are parted, Moses parts the waters, and they go through the waters. It's a type of our baptism. Uh, the, the, uh, Egypt is a type of the world. We leave the world when, 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 we, when we cross through those waters. Uh, Israel is a type of the church. Pharaoh is a type of the devil who tries to stop our exodus from this world. And so, so you see this typology there, and that's what we're going to see today uh, when we look at this text in, in uh, chapter 24 of Genesis, when we go back to this text. It was written, this chapter 24, and we've looked at it in detail already, was written about literal events and literal people. And, and, uh, uh, and, it, and if that's all it is, I mean, if there wasn't even any, any type there, it's a very important chapter, as I said before, because uh, it's through uh, this relationship with uh, Isaac and Rebekah that the Messiah is going to come. And so, so it's important, and it stands on its own. But it is a type, but it's not an allegory. I mean, you can't go to chapter 24 and look at every word and every verse and try to figure out some hidden symbolic meaning because it's not there. 
But when we go through this and we look at this, we revisit this text today, you're going to see that it definitely is a type. God orchestrated all of these characters and all of these events so that he could give this type of this relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And we can see this, and it will encourage us in our relationship with him. So let's look at this as a type now. That's what I want to look at today as we go back to chapter 24. But first, let's look at the characters of this thing, and you're going to see right away that the typology is right there. All right, first of all, Abraham. Who's Abraham a type of? He's a type of the father. Uh, he is the father. He's Isaac's father, so he's a type of God the father. Isaac, is, in this story, is going to be a type of God the son. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Rebecca is the bride, and she's going to be a type of the church. And then there's Eleazar, and this is really interesting here, and I'll show you this in just a second. But Eleazar, Abraham's servant, uh, is a type of the Holy Spirit. And what's really interesting here is that the name Eleazar means God is my helper. Does that sound familiar? The Greek word in the Septuagint for Eleazar is the word parakletos. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if you would go to the Septuagint and you would look up Eleazar, you would see the word parakletos. Parakletos is the word that Jesus used in John 15, verse 26, when he said, but when the helper comes, the comforter comes, the parakletos comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. And who's the Spirit of truth? The Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And in the story that we're going to look at in chapter 24 of Genesis, that we've already looked at in chapter 24 of Genesis, the similarities between Eleazar's role in finding Isaac a bride and the Holy Spirit's role in finding a bride for Jesus Christ, they are striking. You're going to see that here in just a few minutes. All right, now. We've already seen all sorts of typology in the background of this story. Uh, uh, it's full of typology. Uh, we, we've, we looked at this, uh, we saw a lot of it back in chapter number 22. But you can just look at the story of Abraham. Abraham, the father, Isaac's father, he waited a long, long time for his son to be born. And his son was not born until the appointed time. And that's exactly true for, for uh, God the Father who waited a long, long time before Jesus was born. When was he born? We're told in Galatians 4, until, when the fullness of time had come. God waited until the fullness of time had come for his son to be born, and Abraham had to wait till the fullness of time had come for his son to be born. And then you get this beautiful type in chapter 22. Uh, after Isaac is born, uh, 22 years after, I mean, 30, about 33 years after he's born, uh, Abraham took him up on Mount Moriah. We saw that in 20, chapter 22 to be offered up as a sacrifice. Uh, and about 33, when, when Jesus was about 33 years old, he was taken up on Mount Moriah to be offered 
as a sacrifice. And there's all sorts of typology. We went through that when we were in chapter 22, and I won't go over it again other than to, than to say when Abraham took Isaac up that hill, for three days he was as good as dead in his eyes. And then on the third day his life was spared. When God sent Jesus Christ up that hill to Golgotha and he died on the cross, for three days he, he was put into that grave. For three days he was as good as dead. And then on the third day he was raised from the dead. Now here's what I want to do now. I want to go back to this story and where it begins in chapter 24. And uh, we want to look at Abraham uh, we go back, and the story begins, and Abraham uh, sends his servant Eleazar to the city of Nahor to find a bride for Isaac. And that should sound familiar to us. Because remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22 when he told that parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Who did he arrange his marriage with? Who, who, who did, I mean, the king is, is, is God the Father, the son is Jesus Christ, and it's about a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Who did he arrange his marriage with? He arranged his marriage with you and I, with the church. His bride, is, no doubt, is the church. And the Bible repeatedly, over and over again, uh, uses that metaphor of the, of, of the bride as a type of the church. Let me give you just a few examples. In Ephesians chapter 5, remember we're, we're told husbands, uh, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Then later on in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, Christ nourishes the church just as a husband nourishes his own flesh when he cherishes his wife. Then in first, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, uh, speaking of the church, says this. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Uh, just like Rebecca was presented as a chaste virgin to Isaac. But nowhere in the Bible do we see a more striking and beautiful picture of the church as the bride than we do when we get right to the very end. Right to the very end in Revelation, and, and it says there in Revelation chapter 21, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying come and I will show you the bride the lamb's wife and he carried me away in the spirit as to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God the dwelling place of the bride so so we get this grand picture throughout the New Testament of us being the bride of Jesus Christ that's we're that that's what the bride is a type uh, of, of the church. All right, now, we'll go back to the story now. So we got Eliezer. He makes this long journey. I mean, a long journey. Some say 600-mile journey. Uh, at least 400 miles, depending which route he took, up to maybe 600 miles. And they did that on camels and horses, and, and he's packing a, a, this, this, all, this pack of all of these, this dowry and all of his supplies, and he's got his servants with him. It's a long, long journey, and he makes this journey to Mesopotamia, and he comes upon this well in the city of Nahar, and, and by the very providence of God, 
Rebecca comes to that well at exactly the right time when, when Eliezer is there, and she says exactly the right words, and she does exactly the right things, and she comes from exactly the right family. So we know that God is sovereign over this whole affair. Uh, and even though Eleazar is seeking a bride, uh, Rebecca didn't come to that well seeking a husband. And, and in all of this scene, we get a, you know, a, a picture of the sovereignty of God over our salvation, because you just think about that. The Holy Spirit uh, seeks us out even though we're not seeking him. We're not, none of us were seeking Christ when the Holy Spirit drew us to Jesus Christ. Uh, we weren't seeking him. He was seeking us. And, and, and we, when we get saved, we, we, we're, the Holy Spirit comes to us at exactly the right time, and we're at exactly the, the right place, uh, and we do exactly the right thing and say exactly the right words. You know, I don't know what your words were when you got saved, but my words were, my words were one word, uncle. That was it. I finally said, uncle, I can't take this life anymore on my own. Uh, or, and maybe your word was, yes, Lord. I'm tired of it too. I need a savior. I need a change in my life. I need redemption. I need to repent. I need to, I need to come out of this sinful life and, 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 and go to a different life. And the Lord gives us the, the way, and that's through the cross of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just save us. He makes us his child. He makes us his bride. And, and he does that by his sovereignty. He's seeking us when we're not even seeking him. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, he said, no man can come to the Father unless the Father, and how does the Father do it? By the Holy Spirit, draws him. So, it wasn't an accident that Rebecca came there that day. I mean, Rebecca had been chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be the bride of Isaac. There's no doubt in my mind to, to, to be part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She had been chosen before the foundation of the whole of the world, and it's no accident when God chose you. No accident at all. He chose you before the foundation of the world, that we should be blameless and holy and irreproachable in his sight, his holy bride. Go with me, just go, go look at that for a second. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Get back there for a second. To me, this is one of the most Amazing as one of the richest verses of the entire Bible. I mean, it, 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 we talked a couple of weeks ago about meditating on a verse. Just take some time and meditate on this verse. Look at, look at verse number four of chapter, uh, chapter one of Ephesians. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I mean, before he even... Before he even created anything, he knew that you would be a child of God. He knew you. Now, that, you know what that tells me? That tells me when Christ was hanging on that cross, he wasn't dying for a group of people. 
He was dying for his bride, his church. He knew you. He had chosen you before the foundation of the world. He was dying for you as an individual. If you were the only person that he was married to, the only, his only child, he would have died for you. I mean, we see it as hey, he died for the sins of the world, and we kind of we generically look at it that way, but he died for every single individual in this room, and he, he especially died for those uh, who were chosen by him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and without reproach. So he chose you. But even though he chose you before the foundation of the world, you had a choice. Even though Rebekah was chosen before the foundation of the world to be the bride of Isaac, she had a choice. And it was some choice to make. I mean, she was, there she was living at home in Nahar. There were all sorts of, she was a beautiful woman. There was probably all sorts of men that wanted to marry her. Or, or ask her to be married. I mean, uh, I mean, she had a loving family. She had a beautiful home. They were a wealthy family. Uh, and, and she had a choice. She had a choice. When Eleazar presents this proposition to her, and he tells her, look, I want you to go with me and make this long journey, and I'm gonna, I want you to marry this man. I'm going to tell you about this man, but I want you to marry this man who you've never met. Now, that's some choice to make. That's some choice to make. And, and, and uh, she, she, the choice she had was to forsake the world she had known all her life, to give up that life, and, and go and marry a man, on the, go on this long and arduous and dangerous journey, and marry a man whom she had never seen. Man, she really didn't know that much about. And, and, uh, uh, but she left. I mean, she made that choice. She willingly left her home, uh, and she did it with great anticipation and joy, trusting in this guy, Eleazar. Trusting, I mean, no, would you do that, ladies in the room? Would you go leave with some strange man and a bunch of other men on camels? I mean, even if they had a lot of good things, would you leave, leave your family and leave your home and go on this long journey? Well, who's working in her heart? We know the Lord is working in her heart. That's the only way she would have done that. But isn't that exactly what we have to do? Even though we've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, look back again at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, I mean chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now that speaks of the predestination of the saints. There is no doubt that we are predestined. You can't, you can't read the Bible and say that we aren't predestined. We haven't been chosen before the foundation of the world because it can't be any clearer than that. But we also have a choice. Look down in first, verse number 13. Uh, in, and you see both predestination and choice in this passage. Look down at verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. Now, for you to trust, you have to make a choice. The gospel of your salvation, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you having believed, that's your choice. You can believe and agree to give up everything you have and leave the world 
that you, the, the comforts of the world that you live in and be willing to go on this long journey and, and, and marry a man you've, you've never met. How many of you have met Jesus Christ personally and physically? That's what I'm talking about. None of you have. None of us have. None of us have seen him yet. And yet we're asked by the Holy Spirit to, to forsake family, friends, and everybody I'm, to, to it, I'm looking at this metaphorically here, to, to, in order to leave and go and become his bride. Now, that, that's, a, that's a pretty tough choice. And a lot of people will say they've made that choice. But have we really made that choice? Have we really forsaken everything for him? And that's what she was asked to do, and that's what she did. And it's our choice. He says, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. All right, so so she she makes that she makes that choice. I mean, I, I, and I, to me, it's it's uh, amazing that that she made that choice. All right, and and she left, and she's going to end up marrying this guy, and that's what we end up having to do. Jesus put it like this. He who loses his life, and what life was he talking about? The life that we were used to before we were saved. He who loses that life, the, the, the life that we live in this world, the life that, that we live in this world as we've known that life, for my sake will find a new life. And what is that new life? That's the new creation. That's the new life that we live in Jesus Christ. When we get saved, we, that old life is gone. Now, some of it pops its old head uh, back up every once in a while in, in the form of our sin, but we've left that life for a new life. And, and, and that's why this picture is so important, because it's uh, this picture that we're seeing here of Rebecca leaving her life, because that's what we've got to do. And, and, and there are a lot of people who will call themselves Christians who have never really left that life. They're still hanging on to the world. They're still living a worldly life. They're still involved with their old friends, their old family, everything that they did before they're still doing now. And, 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 and I don't know that you're on the journey you're supposed to be on. I don't know that you're on your way to heaven if that's the way you're leading your life. Because Jesus said you've got to lose your life to find your life. And, and, and not only that, we leave this life for a man who we've never seen. And even though we haven't seen him, we love him. Isn't that exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 8? He says, uh, Christ, whom you haven't seen, yet you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I mean, that's the way we feel about our Savior if we're truly born again. All right, then, so Rebecca makes that choice. She's going to leave. And then having made that choice, and she decides she's going to become the bride of Isaac, what does Eleazar do? He bestows her with great gifts. He gives her these gifts. But hey, these gifts were nothing compared to what she was going to get. 
Because Isaac was heir to all the things Abraham had, and Abraham was one of the richest men in the world, and she was going to be joint heirs with Isaac in all that he owned. And so, so this was just a down payment on all the things that she was going to get. That's exactly what happens to us when we become betrothed to Christ. We get a down payment on all the great blessings that we're going to get throughout eternity. Uh, uh, having believed, uh, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's the blessing that we receive. That's the dowry, the gift that we receive when we come to Jesus Christ. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul puts it like this. He says, the Holy Spirit has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee of greater things to come. I mean, the Holy Spirit, I mean, if you're filled to the max with the Holy Spirit, I don't know many people who are, but we can be here on earth. But, but even if you're filled to the, with the max uh, of the Holy Spirit, it's nothing to compare to what it's going to be like when you're in glory. I mean, you're going to be so full of God in glory that you're going to shine like a light bulb. You're going to be one of the shining ones. I mean, you're going to, you're, I mean, and you're going to have perfect joy and perfect love and perfect peace. I mean, we get taste of that here on earth. We get a foretaste of that here on earth, but we don't have that all the time. But in heaven, we're going to have, we're going to, we're going to receive things beyond our wildest imagination as Christ's bride. All right, now we go back to the story, and what happened next in the story? What did Re Rebecca's friends and her, her family tell her? They told her when Eliezer said, hey, we're going to leave, and we're going to leave right now. What did they say? They said, hey, let's, let's delay this a little bit. Let's wait a few days. Let's wait at least 10 days, and at least 10 days probably meant longer than 10 days. Let's, let's Let's wait maybe months. Let's wait maybe years. Let's, let's, look at the life you're living. Do you really want to give that up right now and go on this really long journey and, and, and risk your life for some man that you've never seen? Well, isn't that exactly, again, what happens to us? I mean, whenever the Holy Spirit woos us and tells us, hey, I'm, I want to make you a child of God. I want you to receive Jesus Christ. I want you to have your sins pardoned, and I want you to become a Christian. What happens? I mean, we, what, what do our friends and family say who aren't saved? They say, don't you, want to, ought to, don't you want to think about this for a while? I mean, I'm sure Rebecca had her doubts. I'm sure she was thinking, maybe I ought not do this. You know, just like when, Christ, when the Holy Spirit comes to us and he offers us this relationship with Christ, we have our doubts. Do I really want to plunge into this thing? Do I really want to take this risk? Do I really want to give up this world for a world with Jesus Christ, for a life with Jesus Christ? And we have to make that decision. But what does Paul say? Paul says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, uh, now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. I mean, if you're in this room, and I think I'm speaking to the choir today, most of you are saved, but if you're in this room and you haven't made that decision, don't put that decision off. Because sometimes you'll put it off to the point you really never make that decision. So today is the day. I mean, you, you, when the Holy Spirit is wooing us, and we know he's wooing us, as he's calling us to be part of the family of God, then, hey, we got to jump into it. We've got to plunge into it with everything we have and not put it off at all. Now, so 
She makes the decision to leave. She doesn't listen to her friends. She makes the decision to leave. They have a big party. They celebrate with a family. And the next day, they go on this very long journey. We're not told anything about the journey, but I'm going to tell you what, it was a really long journey. 600 miles on camels is a long, long journey. A really long journey. I've been saved for 30 years. Some of you longer, some of you less than that. But I've got to tell you, it is a long, long journey. I mean, our life is nothing but a vapor. I mean, we're told that by James, and we, we know that. I mean, time seems to fly in some cases, but in some ways it seems to go on forever. I mean, and I, I, I envy those people sometimes who get saved, and they get saved, and they're not here long, and they're, 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 they're in the presence of the Lord. They don't have that long, long journey to make. I don't know why God does that for them. Maybe they wasn't, they when they got saved, they weren't in as big a mess as I was in. When I got saved, so God's going to have to keep me over here a long time to work out everything he wants to work out in me before he takes me up to heaven. I mean, all of us, when we go to heaven, we're going to be changed instantaneously into, into perfect people, sinless people, people without sinful thoughts. I mean, we're going to be glorified at that point. But God still wants to build our character. And, I, and if, if most of the people I've seen who are truly born again, when you get born again, when you make that decision to follow Christ, it is a long, long journey. And, and people call it a race. Well, it's a ra if it's a race, it's a really long race. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. I mean, it is slow. And you have to wait on the Lord and wait on the Lord and wait on the Lord. And you have to endure a lot of things for a long, long time. And, and when Rebecca went on this journey, I'm sure that it was a really dangerous journey. I'm sure that it was filled with all sorts of uh, uh, pitfalls, you know, and, and hardships, and, and uh, it was going to be a long time before she actually came to that place where she was married to Isaac. And it's going to be a long journey for us, and it's full of pitfalls. Jesus said, in this world you will have many tribulations, but be of good cheer. You're going to finish the journey. You're going to finish the journey because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And, and uh, Rebecca was going to finish that journey too. But I'm, I would really, it would be great if in the text somewhere we knew exactly what went on on that journey. But I, one thing I don't have any doubt of is that Eleazar stayed by her side that whole time. Her helper stayed by her side that whole time. Why did he stay by her side her whole, that whole time? Because he had made a vow to Abraham that he was going to bring her back and he was going to bring her back safely. And I'm sure that lightened Rebecca's journey to some degree. And, 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 and I could just imagine some of the conversations they had at night when they were sitting by the campfire. And, and uh, I, I'm sure the majority of the things that she asked him were all about Isaac. Tell me about Isaac. And so when she met Isaac for the first time, he wasn't a stranger to her. I don't believe he was a stranger to her at all because Eliezer had made sure of that. Uh, he didn't spend his time telling her about himself. He wasn't that kind of guy. You can see that in the text. He spent all of his time telling her about uh, Isaac, everything she needed to know about Isaac. You know, Jesus had this to say of our Eleazar, our Paracletus, our helper, the Holy Spirit. He says, 
he, he, and that spirit is the spirit of Christ. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I mean, we are on an arduous journey, a very long journey, but Christ will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He's with us. Uh, he's by our side no matter what we face, though 10,000 fall to our left or 10,000 fall to our right. Hey, we're going to make it through this journey and we're going to make it home to him safely. And while we're making this journey, we have the Holy Spirit guiding us and telling us about the person we're going to be married to, about our Father in heaven, about Jesus Christ. I mean, John puts it like this in 1 John. He says, you don't need anyone to teach you because you have an anointing. And what is that anointing? That anointing is a person. It's a person of the Holy Spirit who will teach you all things. He'll teach you all things about Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus Christ, not only will we be like him, as the Bible says, we will know him. I mean, if you don't know Jesus Christ, when you meet Jesus Christ, I, I, I don't know that you'll even be there because you have the Holy Spirit and he's our teacher. And, and what, does it, what did it say when we looked at that verse uh, a few minutes ago in John 15? It says, but when the helper comes whom I send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. He will tell you all about me. You know, when I'm looking at Genesis chapter 24, it's a story of Isaac and Rebekah, but you know who it's all about for me? It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about the one I'm betrothed to. When I looked at Genesis 22 a while back, you know who it was all about? For me, it was all about Jesus Christ, the one I'm betrothed to. When we looked at the Genesis account in, in Genesis chapter 1, you know who it was all about for me? It was all about Jesus Christ. When I look at the Passover, when we get to Exodus, you know what it's all about for me? It's all about Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit shows us about Jesus Christ. I had a professor in seminary one day that said, hey, beware of these people that look for Jesus uh, under every rock in the Old Testament. My comment was, you don't have to look for him uh, under every rock in the Old Testament. It's clear there for you to see. He's not hidden under any rock. It's, it's plain as day that Jesus Christ has given to us throughout this scripture. But we can only understand that by the Holy Spirit. And that's his job, not to glorify himself, but to glorify Jesus Christ, to tell us about Jesus Christ, so that when we see him, it, we will be like him and we will know him. And if you don't know him, I mean, he knows you if you don't know him. I, I don't believe you're in a relationship with him. Now, let's go back to the story. And the whole time that Eleazar is making this trip with Rebecca, Isaac is waiting. And what's Isaac doing? He's praying. We talked about this last week. He's praying for his future bride. There's no doubt about that. He prayed hard. Remember I said he didn't want a she-devil. He didn't want an ugly woman. He wanted a beautiful woman. He wanted a chaste woman. And, and, and he's praying for her safety. Uh, and and uh, that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ does for us. He's waiting for us. He's waiting for the day when he calls us home. He's waiting for the day when the trumpet blows and, and we're caught up in the air to be with him. But in the meantime, he prays for us. We're told in Hebrews chapter 7 that he, that he ever liveth to make intercession for his bride, for the saints. 
in his high in the high priestly prayer that he played, prayed in John chapter 17, he prayed that, that we would be kept from the evil one, that his bride would be kept from the evil one, and that we would finish our journey on this earth, and that the at, that in the end we would be with him in glory. That's his prayer. Now, if he prays something, he's going to get what he prays for. If he prays for your safety, you're going to be saved. If he prays uh, for your blessings on this journey, you're going to be blessed. If he prays for you to be with him in glory, you're going to be with him in glory. And then when we're in glory, we will be presented to him just as Rebecca was presented to Isaac as a chaste and beautiful bride. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, chapter 22, this is you, a picture of you, holy, blameless, and irreproachable in his sight. Who does that work? Who does that work? Who was the one who took care of Rebecca on that journey? Did, did, could Rebecca have made that journey on her own? Was it her work that made that journey? Was it her doing that, that was it her directions? I mean, how did she make that journey? By the work of her helper, by the work of Eliezer, her paracletus, her helper, her comforter. And he's the one who's going to get us home. It's not our job to get ourselves home. Paul put it like this in Philippians chapter 1. He said, he who began a good work in you, who is that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who began a good work in you will complete it to the end. He's going to get you home. You, you're not going to get yourself home. He's the one who's going to get you home. And then the story ends. And, and uh, the, the, the wedding party is, is coming into town. Uh, Isaac goes out to meet her, if you remember the story. He goes, leaves Beersheba, and he goes out to, to Bir Laharoi the well of the living God who sees. And he goes out there to meditate, and while he's out there meditating, he sees this wedding party coming. And uh, he goes out to meet her, and uh, he sees, lifts his eyes, and he sees her coming, uh, and she lifts her eyes, and she, she sees him coming, and she's filled with great joy, and she puts a veil. Remember what she does? She takes a veil, and she puts it over her head. Now, why does she put that veil over her head? Because that represents her chastity. That represents that she's a virgin, that she's righteous. Uh, and she, so she puts that veil over her eyes. And uh, uh, Isaac goes out. And, you know, we don't get the details of the wedding, but he marries her. He takes her home to his tent. She becomes his wife. And they live happily ever after. Sort of. I mean, I mean they did have their problems. She certainly deceived him in the story of, uh, Jacob and Esau, we'll look at that uh, later on, but, but uh, they did, you know, kind of ends like with one of those happily ever after endings. That closing scene, I love that scene, because that is such a vivid picture of the scene that takes place when you and I pass from this earth and we go into the presence of Jesus Christ. We're either going to pass through this earth through death, are we going to pass through this earth through the rapture? And, and when we do, uh, Christ is going to be there at the uh, well uh, of the living God who sees. And uh, we're going to lift our eyes up and we're going to see him uh, in all his glory. And we're going to go out to meet him. And we're going to be wearing a veil. 
We're going to be wearing a veil not of our righteousness, but, uh, but of his righteousness. Isaiah 61 describes that scene this way. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bride adorns herself with jewels. We are adorned with his righteousness. And we'll be wearing that veil when we finally make it home to glory to celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then we're going to dwell with him, tabernacle with him in the new Jerusalem, and we will live not sort of, we're going to live happily ever after with him forever. What, what a great story. Now, hopefully you can look at chapter 24 and you can see this typology embedded in this chapter. Uh, somebody, people come up to me from time to time and they say, uh, man, you really... I, I see everything you, you showed me, showed us right there, and, and I'm really glad you, you did your homework and dug out all those facts. Look, I'm not about blessing you with facts. I'm about blessing you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, some people can look at this story and they can say, so what? And I can't look at it and say, so what? When I, I remember when I was first studying Scripture and I'd come to a passage like this and just that type was just glaring right there. I mean, I saw it in Genesis 22, I saw it in Genesis 24, and I mean, it just blessed my soul. I'll tell you the first way it blessed my soul, and the first so what, the reason this is so important, is because it let me know that this entire Bible was interwoven together, both Old Testament and New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. I mean, all of this just works together perfectly. It's all a great picture it's all given to us as a picture of Jesus Christ and our salvation in Jesus Christ. And you can find it everywhere. You can find it in Leviticus. You can find it anywhere you go. That's why every book of the Bible is important. So, so, so the first so what is, is just how it, it verifies the authority of Scripture and how Scripture was written by an infinite God who used men to write down the words. But, but these are really his words. And I can trust Scripture. That's... That's the first so what. The second so what is that it demonstrates the sovereignty of God and just uh, over salvation, over the lives of Rebecca and Isaac and Abraham and Eleazar. He put all of these characters together by his providence at exactly the right time at the right place to say all the right words, to do all the right things so that you could have this wedding, so that these people could be part of the genealogy of Christ. And not only that, he orchestrated their whole life so that they would be in these positions so they could paint this beautiful picture of salvation, of our relationship with Christ as our, as our uh, uh, husband and us as his bride, that this could be painted for us by a, by a wise and almighty God. I mean, it's just amazing to me that how sovereign he is over things. And he's, just as he's sovereign over the, the, the way his word was written in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah and Abraham and Eliezer, he's sovereign over your life if you're a child of God. And if you can't see that, you're not a child of God. I mean, God, I mean, if you can't look back and see God working in your life, then you know what? You're leading your life. God's not leading your life. I mean, but even then, I mean, some of you who aren't saved yet, 
When you get saved, you know what you're going to be able to do? You're going to be able to look back over the, over the time before you were saved, and you're going to be able to say, man, God was in charge of my life. Even when I was an enemy of God, he, he was orchestrating who my family was. Just like Re- Rebecca's family was, her, 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 her father was Bethel. Well, God orchestrated that. She was part of Abraham's family because God had orchestrated that. I was part of the family I'm part of because God, by his providence, put me in the Llewellyn family. That's where he put me. And everything in life has been orchestrated. I, I, I love to see that, and you see that throughout Scripture. But those aren't the two most important lessons or the two greatest so what's. Here's the so what that you better get down. And, and this is the so what that changes your life. It's the most important thing that this type shows. And, this is, and, and that is this, that our relationship with Jesus Christ isn't about a ticket to heaven. Now, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have a ticket to heaven. But if your relationship is about a ticket to heaven, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and so you don't have a ticket to heaven. It's not about a ticket to heaven. That's just the byproduct of a relationship with Christ. Your relationship with Christ isn't about you being a more righteous person, a more moral person. About it. it's not a, a, Your relationship with Christ is not a religion of do's and don'ts. Now, if you get saved, you're going to be a more moral person. You're going to be a more righteous person. There's no doubt about that, but that's not what your relationship is about. That's a byproduct of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, let me tell you what it is. It is a grand love story. It is a love story. It is the greatest love story ever told. And it will change your life when you see your relationship with Christ in that way. When you love him, because he first loved you, when you begin to sense the love that he has for you, when, 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 you, when you see him as your helper, as your father, as your husband, as your friend, as your master, when you see him as, your, when you see him as all of those things and you live with him in a relationship, yeah, you got a ticket to heaven and yeah, you're going to be a more righteous person, but you're going to be involved in a love story. A love story like you've never been involved in in your entire life. And if, you're, if, if, if your relationship with Christ is not that, you're not, you don't have a ticket to heaven. You don't, you're not going to be righteous. Because the only way you can be made righteous is by the Spirit of God. And that only comes in a love relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you don't have that relationship, you were brought here today by the providence of God, by the Holy Spirit. You're at the well. And Christ wants to take you home. On a, he's going to give you a helper who's going to take you home on a long, long journey, a tough journey, an arduous journey. And he's going to get you home. 
to be wedded to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all you have to do is say yes. I'll go. I'll give up my old life and my sin and everybody else that's in my way. And Lord, I'm going to go with you on that journey. You make that journey and you will have entered into the happiest, most wonderful relationship of your life. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we just thank you for what you've offered to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, this idea that we can have a personal, not much more than just a personal relationship, Lord, a, a loving, living relationship with a wonderful, loving, infinitely wise and wonderful, powerful God. That we can be your children, that we can be your bride. Lord, that's what you're seeking for all of us, is a real relationship. And if our relationship with you has gone stale, Lord, it, that's on us. Because we, if we're born again, we have your Holy Spirit. We have your Spirit living in us. Lord, help us to, to revive that, that first love, Lord. Help us to live with anticipation and joy about all the things that we have for, in store for us in our future with you. Help us to live for you, to seek you, to seek the giver and not the gifts. And, and Lord, the gifts will come, but Lord, help us to turn our backs on this rotten world and, and turn towards you. Help us to seek you first in all that we do. Lord, if there's anyone here who proclaims to be a Christian that really isn't living in a relationship with you, they know it, Lord, because their life is empty and stale. And I ask that, Lord, today be their appointed day where they meet Eleazar and he leads them to Jesus Christ. Lord, I just ask you to bless every soul in here today with a yearning for you, a desire to know you more, to be your child, to be your bride, and to live with great joy and peace that you offer to us all. We just thank you for who you are and just what a grand opportunity we have in Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.